Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 2. Hello, America. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425, should you wish to be on the program. Uh, we got to turn to political news now and move on from the national security news of the day. It appears that South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is going to run for president of the United States. Tim Scott has been on this program a number of times. He is the only black Republican in the Senate. He has a story that is fairly unique among uh, people in the United States Senate uh, and in Republican politics. And I just, I think the world of this man. I, I, I genuinely, I, I don't actually know that I have a bad thing to say about Tim Scott. He is uh, intuitively, instinctually a conservative. He is a person of very strong faith. And he is a quintessential happy warrior. So I have not been on Bill Maher's show in the last year or so. Ever since COVID, I haven't been on. Uh, The last time I was on Bill Maher's show, uh, about a year and a half ago or so, Bill said he always thought it was funny to have me on that um, there aren't a lot of Republicans left who seem to just be in a good mood. Uh, They're always so angry about stuff. uh, And he appreciated that I, I rarely am one of those people who's just scowling all the time. Tim Scott is one of those people. He is, when you talk about a happy warrior, Tim Scott's a happy warrior. But I want to step back a little bit. Because you got to understand, Tim Scott is a man who's a descendant of slaves. Who is from the state where the first shots of the Civil War were fired. And Tim Scott's story is the American story. He grew up in a South that even now is still overcoming its past. But he did not allow himself to view himself as a victim, but to overcome. Tim Scott's grandfather, great-grandfather, was a sharecropper. His family had land. The media has tried to pick apart his story to deny the story as he tells it is true, and they've had a hard time. Tim Scott grew up in a South that had only recently desegregated and a South that still had a hard time dealing with desegregation. And he could have been bitter. He could have been angry. He could have hated it. He could still hate it. He could have a chip on his shoulder, and he chose not to, unlike a lot of people. And I think we've got to be honest here. There are people who have chosen to be defined by the injustices that have happened to them. Tim Scott's a black man who was raised in South Carolina. Uh, He has seen racism. Whether he talks about it or not, you can't deny he's experienced it in his life, but he hasn't let it define himself in a way that makes him bitter with his fellow Americans. It it doesn't allow him uh, to, he's not allowing himself to be defined by victimhood. And that, I think, is what makes a man to be that happy. There are people on the left who hate that about Tim Scott. 
You need to understand as Tim Scott heads out to running, there are people on the left who will seethe with anger that Tim Scott is a black man running as a happy warrior in the United States who refuses to be defined by the racism inflicted upon him on his family in the Deep South. He refuses to let it define him as a victim. And he refuses to allow you to box him in as a black man from the South. He's an American, a United States senator. Tim Scott represented Charleston, South Carolina, in the House of Representatives. Tim Scott was the first black man to represent that district. It is the district where the Civil War began. From inside Tim Scott's district, the first shots of the Civil War at Fort Sumter were fired. And in that district, where in a war began that ultimately was defined by a defense of slavery by southern states, they transcended it. They overcame their history. They moved past their history. And they sent a black man as a Republican from the party of Lincoln to represent that area of South Carolina in the United States Senate. And then Tim Scott moved to the United States Senate and represents South Carolina to this day in the United States Senate. And he represents South Carolina with its values intact as a Southern conservative state where he is proud of his faith. And Tim Scott's been a conservative happy warrior in the Senate where some members of the Senate who are conservatives go to the floor of the Senate and they rail against the dying of the light, rage, rage against the dying of the light, rage against the cultural changes. Tim Scott laughs at it all. Trust his faith. Trust his convictions. Everybody likes him. That's one of the interesting things here is, is it is hard to find someone who dislikes Tim Scott. And the message he hopes to run is the message of being a happy warrior, a cultural, convictional, conservative who has a vision of hope in this country. Whether it's Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump or Mike Pence or one of the other people who are looking at running for president, I hope whoever it is takes this idea from Tim Scott. There is a lot of hopelessness in the United States right now. There's a great deal of hopelessness. There are people in the United States who just believe that uh, our, our elite have given up on the country. They believe that uh, there's our best days are behind us. I get this a lot, uh, the, this level of rage that is uh, pervasive in, in increasing portions of the conservative movement. Part of that rage is grounded in the fact that 
uh, a belief that our children will not have it as good as we have it or that we don't have it as good as our parents have it or, or that we or our children have somehow been left behind. And there's something to that. I, I think we have to acknowledge that as much as I like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, I, I do like NAFTA. I, I like free trade. I think free trade benefits us. Um, but uh, I think a lot of the people who pursued NAFTA and free trade forgot that there would be Americans who would be left behind, and they did nothing to help those Americans. And to this day, there's a simmering resentment among portions of this nation who have not benefited from free trade. They haven't benefited from globalization. They haven't benefited from an economy that has driven prices down and made more accessible in life because to them, it has walled them off from that access. It has walled them off from an increased income. It has walled them off because of who they were, what they did for a living, their background and education, they did not benefit. And we were told everyone would benefit. And that was in fact a lie. As much as we've gotten good things out of it, as much as we have benefited from free trade, as much as it has lowered prices for all of us, therefore allowing us all to purchase things, we would not have purchased best. There are some people because of their background, because of their jobs, because of their, their, their work life, they lost out in it. They were winners and they were made losers. And the people who put the policies in place told us we would all become winners. And in fact, that wasn't true. And there's been the simmering, seething resentment. And those people are some of the angriest people you will encounter. And it's not just conservatives across the board. I, I lived across the street from a guy. I call him Crazy Pete. Pete was a great neighbor. Pete was a neighbor who... When we had our kids, he and his wife brought presents. When they were gone, we made sure their house was okay. When we were gone, they made sure our house was okay. At some point, Pete became very angry with me. It was after he didn't never really understood what I did for a living. And one night I got named worst person in the world, I think by Keith Olbermann, something like that, or my website Red State was, and Pete turned completely. He became very angry. Pete was a, is still, a, I guess he's still alive, a progressive. In 2008, I had a McCain-Palin sign in my yard. He had an Obama-Biden sign in his yard. And we seemed to get along just fine then. It was only later. Uh, Pete, ultimately, he would heckle my daughter and me when she was like three years old. We would be playing soccer in the front yard, and Pete would stand in his yard if she messed up something. He would laugh, make a big deal out of it. He would laugh at me, um, try to bother me. I kind of felt sorry for the guy. Uh, so his, he worked at a company and led a unionization effort at his company. As best I understand the details, his he and, and the workers with him, they decided to unionize and the company shut the division down, put them all out of work, forced into early retirement. And he got very bitter after that, it seemed. There are people who have been left behind even as our economy's gotten better. And they need hope. There are people who feel put off by what's happening in culture. And they need hope. And there are a lot of Americans who have decided that other Americans are the problem. And there are a lot of Americans who have decided they hate their fellow American. 
and they need hope. In entering the fray for the presidency of the United States comes a black man from the deep south who has experienced injustice and racism by virtue of the color of his skin and the place that he lived, and he doesn't hate, he gives hope. He doesn't scream, he laughs and smiles. He doesn't get bitter, he gets ahead. And that's something we need in our politics today. It's something we need on our stage today. It's something we need it's something we we used to have. Now everybody seems to wish to run for the presidency by saying the other side's to blame, where we're taking on the other side, as opposed to here's a vision for our future that all Americans, regardless of whether they're black or white or married or single or gay or straight or religious or not, or in the South or in the North or rich or poor, that all of them could buy into this vision and in their own way find a way to get ahead with the government getting out of the way, providing them the opportunity at a young age to be able to, as an adult, seize their own destiny, make their way on in the world with the government not burdening them. We need something like that. Tim Scott offers something like that. I'm intrigued by a Tim Scott presidential race. I don't know that he has a natural constituency. You know, that there's a story we'll get to, DeSantis. Uh, people say, is he the next Scott Walker? No, DeSantis has this massive pool of people who want him to run for president. He has massive name ID and massive resources already. I don't know that Tim Scott has that. He'll also be competing against Nikki Haley, who appointed Tim Scott to the United States Senate when Jim DeMint left. She'll be announcing her run for the presidency on Wednesday from Charleston, the area where Tim Scott represented in the House and now lives and represents the Senate. And they'll be dividing themselves from donors in South Carolina and have a pool of people in South Carolina who will split between the two of them. And then where do they get the larger portion of their base to be able to run for president? That's for them to decide, not me. But what I do know is that if Tim Scott can get into the race and be the candidate who he is as a person, a man who smiles and laughs and loves his country and is not bitter, but is determined that all of us should have a better life, that, that's what we need. That's what I think people crave. And that's what Tim Scott offers. So welcome to the arena, Tim Scott. So my kid has a queen-size bed. We've got a king-size bed. We got him bull and branch sheets, and he's used them. He had, like, kid sheets, and now he's old enough. He doesn't want the, the action figure sheets anymore. Well, we got lost because, I mean, the sheets look like our sheets, except they're queen-size sheets, and they got put in our closet, and the kid was in despair. We got him Bolin Branch sheets. They've gotten softer and softer. And he's like, where are my real sheets? He refused to sleep until we found the real sheets because they're that soft. They're that good. They're made with a 100% organic cotton thread. They get softer in every wash. You can stay cozy all winter long with a set of Bolin Branch sheets. They really are that good. We have them on multiple beds in our house. My goodness, my seriously, my kid, uh, he's finally like, my sheets are for kids. I'm I'm grown up now and... Uh, it's just a, a step of quality above what he had. And now he's like, can't sleep without these sheets. 
They're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. They're made without toxins. They're free of pesticides, formaldehyde, other chemicals. They fit the deepest mattress too, which I love because we have a very thick mattress on our bed and it fits. It doesn't like bunch up and then snap off in the middle of the night when you roll over. You can get 15% off your forced order Bowling Branch sheets when you use promo code Eric at BowlingBranch.com. Exclusions apply. See site for details. That's Bowling Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. The promo code is Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I want to go to Nate. Welcome to the show, Nate. How are you? Hey, good, Eric. How are you doing? Good. What's going on? Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So, so I live in Atlanta now, but I grew up in South Carolina. My entire childhood, you know, there was there was two senators: there was Senator Thurmond and Senator Fritz Hollings. And when Dement, you know, took Hollings' seat after he retired, uh, he he stepped down, and you know, Scott was appointed by Nikki Haley for the for the remainder of that term. And there was a special election uh, to fill that seat uh, primary, and in that primary was Tim Scott, and who the son of Senator Thurmond one of the biggest political dynasties in South Carolina. And Scott, you know, had made the name for himself and built such a great reputation in the state of South Carolina. He was able to defeat the son of President Sermon for that Senate seat. So I think that, that speaks volumes about his character and about how he speaks to, you know, can transcend these political dynasties and speak to, you know, everyday people. Yeah, look, I am I like the guy personally. Have him on the show um, occasionally. He's, he's just the nicest. Like, he's a genuinely nice person. Um, I, I wouldn't call him a friend of mine. I, I don't know him that well. We, we text back and forth on occasion. Uh, but he's just like every time I've ever encountered the guy, he's just up for life. It's like, for example, uh, when Marco Rubio comes on the show, he, get that man to talk about football, and he just lights up in a way that he doesn't light up about anything else. Tim Tim Scott's kind of the same way. Get him to talk about something outside of politics. He's just a real human being who relates to people, and get him to talk about football, college football in particular. Um, he can't stop. Um, he's just he's a neat guy. Thanks for that, Nate. It, it is worth noting. I mean, Tim Scott is is his old man. He beat um, political dynasties of South Carolina to become. Uh, the senator, and uh, just he's such a such a nice, good guy. Y'all, I want to be real honest with you. Uh, I have looked, because you have asked me to look, for a reputable gold company that can give you advice and answer your questions that's not gimmicky. Like, for example, some of them do certificates, and some of them they try to rope you in with other stuff. You are interested in precious metals for your retirement savings uh, to ease the ebbs and flows of inflation and wild swings in the stock market. Advantage Gold, Advantage Gold, that's who you want to call. Uh, Advantage Gold, I have looked into them. I have had them answer my questions, and it is not one of these gimmicky places. There aren't tricks. They really just want you to have a great experience learning how to be a gold investor. Give them a call, 800-450-2566, 800-450-2566. Tell them I sent you. You can get their free gold and IRA investment kit, but call them if you got questions. They're good people. 800-450-2566. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Real quick, uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, is, he's one of the big uh, anti-ESG guys. 
And he's 37 years old. He's made hundreds of millions of dollars, written New York Times bestseller, regularly on Tucker Carlson's show. Uh, he, he's been called the CEO of Anti-Woke Inc. And oh my gosh, he's been in Iowa. Um, suddenly, of course, there's speculation. Maybe he's running for president of the United States. Maybe he's running. I I gotta I gotta tell you, um, this is kind of what happens these days when notable figures go to Iowa and New Hampshire. So maybe he's running. I I don't know that this guy actually really is running. But you got a big story in Politico. Someone must have have suggested to him that he would. Maybe he's running for something, but I don't know for certain that he's running for president. Maybe he's running for a cabinet position, trying to raise his profile there. Maybe so, but I I doubt uh, presidency of the United States is on the agenda. I, I do have this concern that uh, the Republicans will not be able to show self-control and, and pile in a million people in the field. Um, and I hope they don't because I don't think it would be good for uh, any of us um, if we had a massive uh, crowd in the Republican primary that just uh, dilutes the ability to appreciate who the candidates are. I, I do think a crowded field would help Donald Trump. And, and honestly, that's another reason that I, I'm hoping that we avoid a very crowded field. I, I think it is it is time to move on from him. I know some of you disagree, um, but I think that you have a massively crowded field and it becomes more and more likely that uh, you're going to have another uh, nomination for Donald Trump. And, and I continue to think that that would be problematic for the GOP. Um, but I also think there are a lot of people who, some of whom have decided they're going to get in and crowd up the field to help him, and some really do believe that they can stop him. Asa Hutchinson, honestly, some of these guys, uh, they, I, how do you think, where's your attraction? So here, here let me just, ah, wasn't going to do this. I guess I might want to talk about, but this is this is important. I've actually run political races. I, I've run campaigns. I, I, I was an elections lawyer. Uh, I, I do know something about this. I've got a pretty good win-loss record. I've worked on presidential campaigns. One of the things I hate in the conversation of modern American politics is the lanes. Everybody's got a lane. It's it's the narrative of races. You're going to be in the Donald Trump lane. You're going to be in the corporate lane. You're going to be in the establishment lane. You're going to be in the anti-establishment lane. Everybody gets put in a lane. And it's in large part because reporters don't have a lot of time to nuance the presidential campaigns. And so they, they take kind of kind of nutshell cliff notes versions of these are the lanes of the candidates. And everybody's going to run in a lane and, and they're going to jockey for position. There's a kernel of truth, however, there. Because you have to have a constituency to run for president. You can run for president and have no constituency, but you're, you you got to be able to raise money. One of the problems is there are very rich people who want to run for president, and also there are some people funded by donors. I happen to like, personally, Jeb Bush. I think 
the successes that a guy like Ron DeSantis is having right now in Florida are foundational upon the successes of Jeb Bush in reforming education. If you believe in school choice in this country, you believe in something Jeb Bush legislated in Florida and improved the situation in Florida. You may not like Jeb Bush because you don't like the Bushes, you think he's moderate, what have you, but you need to appreciate that your advances in uh, private education and in competing with public schools and in the growth of charter schools, that is the genius of Jeb Bush that lives on within the Republican Party. And Jeb Bush did a lot of good as governor of Florida. He was a very good governor of Florida. But when he decided to run for president in 2016, what was his constituency? He had a number of major donors who liked the Bushes, wanted to return to something like George W. Bush, and thus funded Jeb Bush's campaign And so he had a constituency group of very wealthy people to be able to fund a super PAC to support him that spent hundreds of millions of dollars on him in addition to those major donors who could spend money on him as well. But that constituency of donors was not also aligned with a constituency of voters who could vote for him. So dollar for dollar, he could use that money to then build himself a constituency but I thought a lot of the money was actually poorly spent and, and no reason to relitigate 2016 and stuff. But you had that much money, and I just wasn't impressed with uh, how you translate the constituency of donors to the constituency of voters. There was a real disconnect there, a real miscalculation. Every candidate who runs for president has to have a theory of the race. You've got to have a theory of the race. Forget the lanes that the media put you in. Uh, underline everything. Every candidate has a theory of the race. What is your theory of the race? What is Tim Scott's theory of the race? What is Donald Trump's theory of the race? Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. What's this, what was Jeb Bush's theory of the race in 2016? Uh, and some people get it wrong. Your theory of the race develops your strategy. Your strategy develops your tactics. Everything flows one to the other. And when you look at the field, when you look at the candidates running, when you look at the media trying to uh, cover the races and they get in the lanes, one underlying truth is what's your theory of the race and who are your constituents? Ron DeSantis inarguably has a constituency, not just I'm not talking about Florida voters. I'm talking about Republicans in a Republican primary who crave him getting into the race. There is a measurable support for DeSantis right now among Republican donors. There is a measurable wave of support among voters. DeSantis, in other words, does not have to spend a massive pool of dollar donor dollars to convert into a massive pool of constituents who can vote. You got 20 donors who can give millions of dollars to leadership PAC, super PACs, or or a campaign. That's just 20 votes. You've got a million people who are willing to give you 100 bucks. Well, you're talking real money there from a million people who are a million voters as opposed to 20. DeSantis has both. The reality is that as Tim Scott gets in, as Nikki Haley gets in, as Mike Pence gets in, as Donald Trump is already in, They not only have to have a theory of the race, what's going to get you the nomination, you've also got to have a constituency that can help you deliver it. And that constituency can be 
donors with large dollars, and then you use those dollars to grow a constituency of voters who can vote for you, or you have a constituency of voters that is large enough, you then persuade the donors to give you the dollars, and you use those dollars to expand your pool of constituents. That's the hard part here, honestly, for a Tim Scott, for a Nikki Haley, for a Christy Nome, for any of these others who may get in. This is not a disparage. Don't hear me saying I'm attacking them or disparaging them or criticizing them. This is just a reality of the race. Ron DeSantis has dollars from donors, and he also has a large base of constituents ready to vote for him. So he already takes that existing pool of of voters who can then serve as ambassadors to other voters. And likewise, he has this money from donors that can be used to expand his pool of voters through an ad campaign, through a voter ground game, through voter contact and getting those people out. Take a Nikki Haley or or a Tim Scott. Everybody really likes them. They're very nice. They're great people. They're they'd be good candidates. Who is their natural constituency? How many of those people do they have? How does that then translate into donor dollars? And how does the donor dollar then translate into growing that constituency of voters? Because the reality is right now you have two large constituents of voters. You have the Ron DeSantis voters and you have the Donald Trump voters. You have a large pool of undecided voters as well, but those undecided voters will be split across the field and not consolidate behind any one person. Some of them will go to Trump, some to DeSantis, some to Haley, some to Scott, some to Pence. How do you shake up that dynamic? This is the thinking that goes into these campaigns. This is the thinking that must go into these campaigns. This is why they surround themselves with a lot of uh, campaign strategists and analysts. They do a lot of polling. They try to figure it out. You start with your theory of the race. Then you decide who's going to be the stiffest competition. Then you do essentially a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and essentially what you're doing in a campaign is you say, who is your major rival? What are my strengths objectively? What are his strengths objectively? What are my weaknesses objectively? What are his weaknesses objectively? And then you try to counter your strengths to his weaknesses and pare down your weaknesses uh, with his strengths to try to neutralize the effort there to build your comprehensive campaign theme. And typically, when I ran these campaigns, your theme, your campaign statement derives from all of that. So the theory of the race, for example, could be that America's ready to move on from Joe Biden. He was only there to replace Donald Trump. People aren't particularly enamored with him. Uh, when presented with a newer, younger, fresher face with better message, uh, the public will move on from Joe Biden. That's true within the Democratic primary, I think, as well. But you also have to make strategic moves within the primary that win you the primary without losing you the general election. That's one of the problems that, for example, Carrie Lake had in Arizona. Carrie Lake knew that if she ran as as loyal to Donald Trump, she could win the primary in Arizona. The problem is by her embrace of the stolen election stuff, which some of you believe but most Arizonans did not, she risked alienating Arizona voters. Then she gets to three days before the general election and on stage says, caught on camera and microphone, you can see it for yourself, if you're a McCain voter, get out of here, we don't need your help. And those McCain voters turn out to be the margin of victory for Katie Hobbs, her opponent. 
Carrie Lake lost. She's campaigning around the country, claiming it was stolen from her. Meanwhile, the Republicans were able to hold the Arizona legislature, the majority of the Arizona congressional delegation, uh, several other statewide seats, but they lost that one in Blake Masters. Masters wasn't a great candidate. Turned out neither was Carrie Lake. She seemed to be a great candidate, but the problem for Carrie Lake, she had a good theory of the primary, be as Trump as possible. She had a bad campaign theory overall that Arizonans wanted some radical departure from what they had. It turned out not to be true. And then she violated one of the major rules of politics. Never, ever take an action that wins you the primary that costs you the general. And the stolen election stuff from 2020 was that for her. She doubled down on that error and it cost her things. These sorts of things are why you surround yourself with campaign strategists and pollsters. And all of these candidates will do that. They will have to raise money. They will have to find voters. The hard thing, again, for someone not named DeSantis or Trump is where do I find the donors and how do I expand my base of voters who are naturally drawn to me? If they can figure that out, they can give DeSantis and Trump a run for their money. But it's something they've got to be able to figure out, and it's not going to be handed to them. They've got to have the confidence and the wherewithal to think there really is room for someone like them. The problem as well is there are some Republicans out there, Ace Hutchinson is one, uh, former governor of of Arkansas, who seems to think that uh, there is room for him in a Republican primary. There's not really room for you. You have no natural constituency at all. Nikki Haley and and, uh, Tim Scott have a larger natural constituency than a guy like him, or what's his name for Maryland, who I guess has now decided he's not going to run. I mean, or Chris Christie, God bless him, nice guy, uh, former governor of New Jersey, he's on ABC News. What would his theory of the race be and what would his natural constituency be? And is it large enough to be DeSantis? If you want to stop Trump, as it sounds like some of these guys do, uh, why not back someone who can grow their base of vote as opposed to stealing from them and thereby helping Trump who has a natural base? All of these have to go into calculations. The problem is it's kind of like the, the the family that spent the money on the He Gets Us Jesus ads. You're surrounded by a bunch of people who are going to make a mint off of you if you pull the trigger. They have no incentive to tell you it's not worth it. It's going to hurt you. You're not going to win, and you might help the guy you want to stop. These people all get surrounded by yes men, and the yes men don't like to say no, don't like to tell the candidate, They shouldn't be doing it because it benefits the yes men. They're going to make a killing. There's rarely when you get to this point an incentive to say, maybe you shouldn't do this. Every candidate needs to be surrounded by people who can tell them no. It makes them better candidates. And also, once they get elected, makes them better elected officials. One of the groups out funding the conservative cause is Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile needs your business to grow their profits, and then in growing their profits, they spend a portion of that on the conservative causes you care about, from the pro-life movement to the Second Amendment movement. PatriotMobile.com, all you got to do is call them, 972-PATRIOT, tell them I sent you, you get free activation, you get guaranteed great service, they use the same cell towers everyone else uses. If you don't believe me, go to PatriotMobile.com slash Eric, you can connect with them there as well, PatriotMobile.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Put in your home address. They, they've got a map that shows you their detailed coverage. Put in your home address. It zooms into your house on the map and shows you how strong the 5G is, the data, the voice. They're good people. They share your values. They fund the causes you care about, but they need your business to get it done. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric or 972-PATRIOT. Tell them I sent you. You get free activation. 
And again, guaranteed great service from Patriot Mobile. You don't have to worry about the quality of service. And they will worry about the causes you care about and fund them with their profits. PatriotMobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. This hour of the program brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. Wherever you are nationwide, they want your business to grow. If you want your business to grow, reach out to them. FirstLibertyGA.com. Tell them I sent you. Well, the college board has decided to attack Ron DeSantis. Uh, Stanley Kurtz at National Review has this. Facing a torrent of criticism from customary allies on the left for having caved to Ron DeSantis on the AP African-American Studies curriculum, the College Board issued an attack on the Florida governor on 8 p.m. Saturday night. What can account for so oddly a timed salvo? Friday's calls from the National Black Justice Coalition, among others, for the resignation of the College Board CEO David Coleman may have something to do with it. Despite winning a considerable victory on the curriculum front, DeSantis has not formally accepted the AP African American Studies program for course credit in Florida. The governor wants to learn more about the College Board's announced plans to include and highlight critical race theory-based readings uh, on their digital platform. The College Board appears to have calculated that it has no further political leeway either to reduce the radical readings that will now be made available or to balance them with more modern and conservative voices. Knowing DeSantis is therefore unlikely to green light its program, the College Board has gone to war with Florida. Attacking DeSantis is their best hope for downsizing the tsunami of outrage, threatening to engulf it from the left. The College Board continues to claim that several months' worth of expression of concern by Florida about critical race theory-based content has nothing to do with the revisions. That is kind of the funny thing. So, you know, DeSantis said that they would preclude this African-American Studies case uh, course because it included certain things, including like feminist theory and queer theory and other stuff that high schoolers don't need. They took it all out. They're saying DeSantis had nothing to do with us taking all of this stuff out. They only took it out after DeSantis made a big deal about it, and it became a national story. Um I just, the college board, it's captured by the left, can't be trusted, and now it's funny to watch the left uh, still vilify it for trying to appear to be reasonable. There's no common ground with a lot of these people anymore.